Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is taxi founder and CEO Michael Laskow. First of all, U.S. radio seems to be going downhill and downhill fast. If you take notice, the rest of the world really has a lot of growth going on in radio. It's doing well. But in the U.S., things are just not happening. Most of that is because of consolidation and the fact that now the majority of radio stations are run by big station groups, and they're not healthy at all. For instance, the largest, which is iHeartRadio, is in bankruptcy and is $6 billion in debt. And now we just found out that Cumulus, who's the second largest one, is down by 2%, and they're not doing well. There's a lot of discussion, if you look at any of the forums for radio, that they don't really know what they're doing, and of course it's not going to grow if that's the case. And from what we've seen, station groups are just not all that successful at making vital radio that we also want. Now you can check this for yourself. If you listen to any AM or FM radio, for that matter, listen during drive time and take notice the number of public service announcements that there are, even in prime time drive time. That kind of tells you that radio is not healthy. A lot of it has to do with the fact that now they have seven-minute advertising pods, commercial pods, and boy, nobody likes those. The idea behind them is the fact that, okay, we don't have to have as many commercial breaks but when you have real long ones, a listener is more likely to change the channel. Well, on top of that, we find the college radio, which was once very vital, is now going mostly online. Colleges are selling their terrestrial radio stations. And the NAB for... One more. And the NAB finally is losing some influence, and that may lead to some new laws that actually make it better for artists who've never been paid for airplay. Yes, songwriters get paid, but artists don't. So I have a prediction. I think that what we're going to see is all of a sudden the big radio conglomerates, the big station groups, begin to spin stations off. And I think you're going to find a lot more local ownership. Radio is meant to be local, and the fact that it's not and it's all programmed from one central place isn't good for it. It's not healthy, and now we're seeing the result. The other thing I think is going to happen is that digital is going to be part of the terrestrial strategy. They're just going to think. Instead of online and terrestrial being separate, they're going to be the same thing, and it's all going to play into the same central strategy. The other thing they're going to need is a smart speaker strategy because everything is pointing to the fact that Smart speakers, especially when it comes to radio, is a really big deal, and you have to think of it differently in order to actually make it work for you. So I think that will happen in the future as well. The other thing I think is going to happen is Sirius. It's a radio station, but satellite radio. I think you'll see that bought by a telecom. Sirius is actually making money, but I think you're going to see a telecom company eventually absorb it. So that's my prediction for radio. Let's see what happens. But whichever way you look at it, U.S. radio is not healthy. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and is the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Books chart. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. And I thank you very much for your support. Now, we're beginning to see algorithms for just about everything. And one of the more interesting ones is by Charlie Thompson, who's a data scientist. He came up with what he calls the Gloom Index algorithm. And this is finding the saddest songs. So guess what? We now know the five saddest songs that were number one on the Billboard charts. And I expected at least some of them to be from... Oh, Smashing Pumpkins and Corn, perhaps, and a lot of those angst-driven bands, but that's not the case. Here we go. Number one, The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face by Roberta Flack. That was number one in 1972. That's the saddest song ever, according to this algorithm. Number two is Three Times a Lady by The Commodores from 1978. Again, <laughs> you wouldn't expect that. 
Number three, Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis in 1960. Who would have thought? Number four is Mr. Custer by Larry Vern in 1960. I don't even remember that one. Number five, Still by the Commodores, 1979. The Commodores have the distinction of being on the saddest song list twice. So we're going to see more of this as Spotify and Grace Notes Mood 2.0 begin to really specify different songs available via moods. So now if you really want something to match your mood, it's going to get a whole lot easier, although I'm not so sure that you want sad songs. Michael Laskow started Taxi in 1992 with the idea of helping songwriters, artists, bands, and composers get their music heard initially by record labels and later by music publishers and music supervisors. The company now has members in over 90 countries and features a host of placements with virtually every major television channel and film studio. If you think of Michael as just a music publishing guy, though, you'd be wrong. Michael has a rich history as an engineer working on projects by Eric Clapton, Neil Young, and Cheap Trick, among many others, and in post-production as well. During the interview, Michael shared some of those stories, as well as giving us a look inside Taxi and busting some myths along the way. We spoke in person in the Taxi offices in Calabasas, California. You told me a story about how you got into business that I thought was just fantastic. I was 19 years old. I was in college in Miami. I was probably going to go to law school and I had the secret fantasy of wanting to be in the music business, particularly in the studio side of things. I went with a roommate of mine to drop off or return a piece of gear at Ace Music, which was kind of the uh, guitar center of the day. And while standing there, I overheard a delivery guy that said he was going to take a piece of gear to Criteria Studios for Stephen Stills. I cajoled, begged, pleaded, did everything I knew how to do until he finally said, sure, you can go with me, sit in the lobby, don't open your mouth, don't do anything that'll get me in trouble, just sit there. While I was sitting in the lobby and he was setting up the gear in one of the studios, an older gentleman in his 50s walked through the lobby with a younger, hippie-looking guy, and he said, look at this place, looks like crap, we need somebody to clean this up, and I jumped out of my chair, dropped my billboard on the floor, which was like a Mexican floor tile floor, and made a thwack. He turned around, looked at me, and I waved my arm, said, I'll do it. And he just looked at me like, who is this guy? Why is he in my lobby? And he was silent. He just gave me this weird stare, and I said, I'll do it. I'll clean your studio. Who are you? Are you here with Stills, who was there recording Love, Love the One You're With? Um, the Bee Gees were there recording Jive Talking. Clapton was there doing I Shot the Sheriff and the whole 461 Ocean Boulevard album. And the Eagles were there doing the One of These Nights record. And he said, you know, are you here with Stills? Are you here with that? No, I'm not with any of them. I'm here with the delivery guy from Ace Music who then wanted to kill me. Uh, he grabbed me by my shirt, the owner of the studio, whose name was Mac Emmerman, and I owe him everything. Uh, he grabbed me by my shirt, <laughs> literally could have dragged me over to the front door, opened the door and said, and stay out. <laughs> and I waited for him to disappear because it was a glass door. I could see him going down the hallway. I opened the door. I said to the receptionist, is that the owner? Yes, it is. What's his name? Mac Emmerman. I called him 25 times that week, five times a day for five days straight. Finally, Friday afternoon, 4 p.m., he got on the phone. He said, look, kid, you're driving my receptionist crazy. If, you, uh, if I interview you for this job, which is an internship, and you don't get it, you promise you'll never call here again <laughs> as long as you live. And I said, okay. So I drove about an hour back up there. I walked into his, his office. Before he had a chance to even stand up from his desk, I just leaned across the desk, shook his hand, and said, I will be the first one in and the last one out every day. And he said, okay, you've got the job. It may last a day, it may last a week, it may last a lifetime, it's up to you. That is awesome. Yeah, I, I owe him everything. How long were you at Criteria? Um, just under two years, it was like 21 months or something like that. Okay, so then what happened? Did you graduate to being an assistant? I did. Um, I started out, uh, as we all did, wrapping cables and labeling tape boxes and pizza runs and whatever else I was asked to do. And then uh, one day I got a call from the front office that an unknown band called Firefall 
was going to do an album in Studio A, and none of the other assistants wanted to work on the record because they weren't famous yet. Uh. <laughs> Everybody had gotten really spoiled there, working only with famous people all the time. Well, Firefall was a, a band that had a lot of guys, you know, from the band Spirit and yeah. um, several other bands in there. Um, and so they threw me in, and uh, luckily the engineer, uh, the first engineer on the record was a guy named Carl Richardson, who uh, was also a co-producer on the BG stuff. Yeah. Um, and I had been taking Carl's RIAA class at night on recording techniques with a book written by Robert Runstein. I still remember the author's name. Still going strong. Really? Years, yeah. Wow. And uh, Carl said to me, you go set up the room. And I remember immediately thinking, oh my God, I'm sweating so bad you could see it in my armpits because I was scared to death. I mean, here was this guy, Carl, that I idolized. And he said, you go set up the room. You, you know, talk to the players, find where they want to be in the room and you pick the mics and you set it up. Scared to death. Anyway, after it was all done, I came back in the control room and he said, I wouldn't change a thing. I almost cried. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first record that I got to work on as an assistant. Um, then I, I got to work on some Clapton sessions as an assistant. Um, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young did a reunion record that never came out, but it ended up being Stills, Young, Long May You Run. And on that record, uh, that was my bar mitzvah. Don Gaiman was the first engineer on it. We were in the building 37 days straight without leaving. And at some point, Don said something like, you know, can you run this thing? And he pointed to the console. And I remember I got to overdub background vocals. And uh, I remember pinching myself. It was the only time in my career I ever pinched myself on the leg and kind of whispered to myself, do you realize where you are yeah, what yeah. you're doing? And I remember saying, uh, Neil, back out like 18 inches. David, come in a little bit. And then I told all the guys drop a quarter by their right toe, you know, so they could find their spot again afterwards. And I, I, I almost had a stroke, <laughs> you know, I, I was probably 20, 21 years old or something like that. And, uh, so that was, was my career. Then I, I left criteria. Somebody built a, uh, a criteria equivalent studio in Fort Lauderdale. And there were really only two real studios in South Florida at the time. It's called triad recording. And I went there as an independent pr to bring a record that I was engineering and producing and the owner of the studio said, look, I don't know how to run this console. I don't know how to run a business. You clearly know how to do both. Why don't you just take the place over and make sure that you don't lose my grandfather's investment? And the guy just left. So I kind of inherited a world-class 24-track studio around 1977, I think. Um, some, and... Uh, you know, I graduated to engineer and then producer while I was there. It's a mind-blowing experience when you work with people that you idolize and you realize they're just humans too. Uh, but you have to carry yourself in such a way that they trust you and feel confident that you're not going to screw up what they're doing. How did you get to LA? Very circuitous path. Um, I was in South Florida for 10 years and then at some point realized that I was not seeing I had, my first daughter, Rachel, was born. And I don't think I held the kid more than three times in uh, the first six months of her life. And, and so at some point, uh, I decided I wasn't going to do records anymore and uh, that I'd had a, the Mariel boat lift had happened in South Florida and crime just went through the roof. The whole cocaine cowboy thing was, was terrible. And I probably wasn't helping my marriage a lot. So I came home, said to my uh, then wife, we're going to move to New York and I'm going to do audio post-production. So we moved to New York. I got a job doing audio post, did very well in that world, um, ended up being the, the studio manager of a place called Howard Schwartz Recording, which oh, later geez. became oh, HSR. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, learned how to do audio post. Uh, and then did that for six years, was offered a job to be general manager of LA Studios and Margarita Mix out here. I actually brought John Stork in to design Margarita Mix and uh, was only there for a year, I think. They fired me because I told them they needed $11 million to build the two facilities. They wanted to build two more multi-room facilities. And when I told them how much it would cost, they thought I was out of my mind. They brought in a consultant behind my back and he came in like within a hundred dollars of my projections. And they said, we can't afford this. You're out of a job. 
So I got a job doing uh, general post-production. Oh, did I? how did I end up in L.A.? That was the actual question. Anyway, yeah, it was those guys brought me out here. Uh, and I kept my apartment in New York and my two daughters, uh, by that time I had two daughters, um, they lived with my ex-wife. So I kept an apartment in Midtown Manhattan uh, and, or 72nd in Columbus and would go back and forth every other weekend, never missed a birthday or a dance recital. Um, and so I was truly bi-coastal for a while, but now I've been here for 30 years. So then you're out here and you're in the post world. Mm -hmm. is, is that kind of where you stayed for a while? Yeah. Um, I, I became general manager of a company called Red Car in Hollywood that was a shoot and edit company, uh, mostly TV commercials, um, a lot of music videos. So I was comfortable in that world because I had been around it doing audio post. Um, and I think that all that stuff between the records and the audio post, it all set me up well to start Taxi. Yeah, and I could see where the idea is coming from because you're in that world and you saw you saw the need, right? Yeah. Okay, tell me about starting Taxi. Well, uh, I didn't love my boss, um, to be honest. Um, and I missed music. I, I missed that moment when musicians walk in the control room after cutting a track and they're listening to it on the big monitors and they all look at each other and go, wow, that's us. And I love that feeling of sitting behind a large format console and the hair in your arm stands up when you have that magic moment where all the guys on the other side of the glass are doing their thing really well and you're doing your thing really well and you feel like you're flying an F-15. I miss that. And um, so I remember walking into my office one day, putting my feet up on my desk and thinking, what can I do to get back to music? And I realized, I think I'd read about a thing called an Alesis ADAT that was a uh, multi-track recorder on VHS tape, uh, eight tracks uh, on a VHS. And I thought to myself, that's going to change everything. When musicians can, somebody who's got a song in their head and their heart can lay it down at home on something um, with more than four tracks, that's going to change everything. And I had the idea right then and there for Taxi. Almost the entire model and business plan popped into my head. Um, I went back to my then girlfriend or fiance's apartment in Santa Monica and sat there basically at her computer for about 48 hours straight and wrote the business plan, which is sitting 10 feet away from us as we talk, and flew to Dallas, Texas to excuse me, meet with... Um, gentleman named Michael Letter, who was my best friend in my RA in college. And uh, he'd saved a little money and I presented him with the idea and he talked to his brother who was an accountant and he funded me with $70,000 to start the company out of a one bedroom apartment. Okay. $70,000 is a lot of money in one sense and not a lot in another because yep. what people always forget about when they're starting a business is, okay, I need this amount of money to get going. Then they forget about marketing. Yep. And marketing is important <laughs> to let people know. So how did it work for you? Very perceptive on your part, Bobby. Uh, and that is the best business advice I would give to anybody, which is never forget the marketing budget because that's the most important thing. Have the greatest idea in the world. You think everybody's going to show up at your door, but if they don't know it exists, they don't know where the door is. So, uh, yes, I, I quickly figured out that virtually all that money went to marketing. I started buying, um, I think there were quarter page verticals or third page vertical ads in, and like uh, recording magazine, electronic musician, um, songwriting magazines. And it was shocking. Uh, you know, I, I went in, I remember I owed the guys at recording magazine $18,000 on nothing more than a handshake. I said to them, look guys, here's the deal. I don't have a lot of budget, but I will promise you uh, that if my company goes under, I will pay you every penny that I owe you. It may take me 20 years, but I will pay you every penny. And they were such good guys. They said, yes, to this day, 26 years later, I still have not missed a month of advertising in that magazine because they did that for me. Um, so it was a struggle. And, and honestly, the industry showed up before the musicians did. I thought it'd be the other way around. That I would have a hard time convincing people at record labels to run their requests for music through taxi um 
and that the musicians would all be very hungry and, and you know like hungry dogs at the front door it was quite the opposite and it took that marketing budget to get people to the front door so that i could then convince them that we were real number one legitimate number two and that we'd be in business three months six months or a year later because they were paying for the service up front so you said record labels was that the major client then that was um probably a hundred percent of our listings in the beginning were for song, uh, for record labels and publishers okay uh and we worked with all the major labels more major labels than we did indies at the time um, and it was either labels looking for new acts or publishers looking for songs that they would then pitch to those acts or major labels looking for songs for their acts. The first listing that anybody ever ran with us was a guy named Craig Kalman, who's now um, co-chairman of the board of Atlantic Records. And uh, we still keep loosely in touch to this day. It wasn't until probably two years later that we got into the film and TV thing, which is now the majority of what we do. Okay, so you knew the music business because that's where you started, mm-hmm. and you knew a lot about television anyway because you're you're an audio post, yeah. Audio post. Was this a natural transition going over there? Was this something that that you decided? Okay, after I'm going to start here, and then we're going to move over here eventually, or is this or very organic? The way uh, quite accidental, actually, and very organic. Uh, I purposely stayed away from advertising. The last few years that I was in post worked on a lot of advertising stuff and the people at ad agencies are pretty famous for changing their minds a lot. And I couldn't torture musicians with that many changes. So uh, we were doing all record stuff. And one day I got a call from a lady named Susan Bader who sounded just like Joey's agent on Friends, Estelle. Hey baby, uh, can you find me uh, some horrific music? You know, she was chain smoking on the other end. You could literally hear her chain smoking. And I said, horrific as in really bad or movie for or music for horror flicks. And she goes, the latter. And I said, okay, yeah, we can do that. And I remember um, one of the people that we forwarded to her was a guy from here in LA, I think Van Nuys named Steve Clark. I can't believe I remember his name 26 years later. And she called me up and she goes, I love it, baby. It's perfect. <laughs> and I went, wow, there's a market there. So uh, people in the TV industry can use music from independent musicians that are making it out of bedroom studios now. Yay. And very quickly after that, we started getting calls from music supervisors who heard about it through her or other musicians. I don't know. But the film and TV side of the industry came to me while I was busy chasing the records mm. side of the industry. Yeah, and they have deeper pockets too. So it was yeah, better. and um, you know there was really nobody connecting independent musicians with film and TV stuff at the time. Uh, there was a guy named Mark Ferrari. Uh, I can't remember the name of Mark's company, uh, but he was getting a lot of like hairband metal stuff in, in some movies and some TV shows, but other than half a dozen or so music libraries that had very homogenous sounding canned needle drop music at the time, there just weren't any independent musicians getting their stuff into TV shows and and films and and taxi. If I can pat us on the back a little bit, um, we were really the first to do it in a big way. So I'm kind of proud of that. I think we were, we were pioneers if I can be immodest. Well, Hey, if it's true, it, you know, yeah, when did you feel like, hey, this is going to work? Um, 26 years later on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> uh, like all people who have found success, I, I fear losing the success every day, and that's what keeps me successful. I don't know that I ever had that day, but I will tell you that it took me seven-ish years to get back to the income level I was at before I left my last job, my last real job in quotes, and started the company. And I think I was making $109,000 a year. So it took me seven and a half years to get back to that number. And I think that that was probably the first time I went, okay, you know, this can work or is going to work. That was a long seven and a half years. When you first started, was it just you or did you have other people working with you? Um, My wife worked with me. She, uh, had gone back to school to get a double master's degree. So she was working for me very part-time. She would get back from school and do like two or three hours of data entry a day. Had a couple of, you know, just uh, people that I would hire for a month or two, sometimes maybe six months. But initially, 
it, it was usually me and some sort of data input person that would just do update the database and send out information kits and that sort of stuff. Uh, and then the screeners, um, do you know Skunk Baxter was one of my first screeners. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, as was John Brahaney, um, Rich Ezra, um, and I think there were seven screeners, Rob Shirelli, sure there were seven or eight in the beginning somewhere i've got a picture of the initial group of taxi screeners like the original astronauts yeah yeah um so the funny part was is that uh, we were working out of a one-bedroom apartment and uh the screeners would all come over and i had boom boxes and headphones and there were times that my wife came back from uh, a full day of school and she'd walk into the apartment and there'd be two or three people on our mattress on the floor in the bedroom, people sitting on the kitchen counter, people on the couch, of course. Uh, we had a dining room table for two. I mean, just everywhere there were people with boom boxes listening to music. And then it got to the point where I had to start going to them. So I would load boom boxes and headphones into my, the trunk of my car and big white plastic mail bins filled with cassettes and go to somebody's house and two or three screeners would meet me over there and we'd start screening at seven o'clock at night and work till like midnight. And then I would start my day again the next morning at 6 a.m. It took that kind of work for those first seven and a half years to get back to the level of income I was at. Wow. So it, anybody who thinks this was easy, they're wrong. <laughs> now, of course, we're talking again pre-internet when you're doing all this. So, uh, Well, pre-internet, but AOL. I started the company on AOL in 1992. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. AOL had 100,000 subscribers. Yeah. That was a bad bet on my part. I thought the internet would take off. Well, the internet in quotes. I thought the online thing would take off much faster than it did. But with only 100,000 subscribers worldwide to AOL, very few of them were musicians, and the company was dying on the vine very quickly. So I had, and I was burning through that marketing money at a rate of like you know three four thousand dollars a month, um, and not paying myself either. Um, come to think of it, um, so I think it was probably six months to nine months in. I remember saying, "All right, I'm going to have to print the listings out on paper and start mailing them out." So then we had the cost of printing and mailing and stapling i remember my wife and i would literally put stamps on everything with our hands and address them with our hands the software to do mailing labels hadn't been invented yet at least not for consumers yeah yeah sure <laughs> so yeah. it was very organic and very primitive in the beginning well again that's what's interesting because you know we're talking about the old-fashioned mail yeah. that you're doing and and as we know boy that's not an easy thing well you know especially so it's even more amazing that you could grow the way you did considering the obstacles it, it was slow you know there was no baboom we're, we're a big company i mean it was incremental growth um probably on the order of like if you annualized it and average it was probably like 15 percent a year took a very long time considering how busy you were with screening with mailing all those things how about getting listings were they just coming in organically or did you have to get in the phone and, and both um repeat business created a certain um like baseline of or you know the organic stuff that would come in repeatedly people that i had worked with uh, and were kind of shocked at the quality shocked at how good the stuff was that we were sending they'd reach out to me uh you know if whoever was going in the studio and they needed songs they would say hey you know, I just reached out to all the publishers, the usual cast of characters. Can you guys see if you can find me something? Uh, and then, yes, I would spend probably, I don't know, two hours a day reaching out to people, but no emails. Because back then, you hit send on an email, you get this spinning wheel. It was yeah. a monochrome screen with a spinning wheel on it of sorts. And I could make a sandwich and take a piss before that email would be out the door. Yeah. So I had to do it on the phone. Um, sometimes I would fax over letters to people at record companies. Yeah. It was very primitive. Okay, so tell me how Taxi works for those who just don't know about Taxi. You know, it, it, we're kind of like a, a matchmaker for the music industry and kind of like a tip sheet with a filter. But how it works is the record companies, publishers, um, music supervisors, music libraries call us or email us and say, 
I need this kind of music for this TV show, or we've got an artist going in the studio for this record label. We need this kind of song, or we're looking for a new pop punk band, whatever the, the case is. Uh, we disseminate that information to our members that are in the thousands and they're all over the world. And we tell them what's being looked for and what the entity is. We don't tell them that it's Atlantic Records or that it's this music supervisor, or that TV show, because people will do an end run and reach out and pester those people to the point where it's not good for anybody. Um, when the musicians think that they've got the right thing to satisfy one of those requests of which they're about a hundred a month on average, they send the music into us. And then we have screeners that are very, very expert people. They're not, uh, some people have su suspected that we use interns or, uh, you know, that it's like two guys doing all the music listening. It's not, it, it's actually about 40 to 50 people a month that are all experts in certain genres so that when you send a pop song, you're getting screened by somebody who's an expert in pop. When you send in a jazz tune, you're getting screened by somebody who's an expert in jazz. If it's a film and TV submission, it may not be a jazz expert because you're better off having somebody that knows what kind of jazz would work in a TV show. So we'll use somebody who worked at a music library or um, music supervisors work for us. You know, it's kind of a myth that music supervisors are big, powerful um wealthy people make a ton of money. There are a lot of music supervisors that have big holes in their schedules and they've been known to drive cars for Uber or Lyft. And so they will actually come here and work uh, at Taxi. There's some pretty big name music supervisors who have screened here at Taxi and former vice presidents of A&R and what have you. Um, so they screen the material. They find the stuff that fills the need if it's on target stylistically and the and is over the quality bar that music is then forwarded to the industry person who requested it and if the industry person wants to make a move on it they reach directly out to the musician because we obviously provide the contact information and if there's a deal struck taxi doesn't get a piece of anything we we've earned our money which is 300 bucks a year just by providing the service and the filtering and making those connections so what I've heard is some people say, well, why do I need a service like taxi? I can do it myself. Yep. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, if you know all those people, but you probably don't. Right. And you could find those people. I mean, look, the internet, uh, Google in particular, has made it really, really easy to find people. But um, it's a business of relationships. And uh, yes, there are music libraries that you can submit directly to. But are those the music libraries that you really want to be in? Because there are music libraries and there are music libraries. Um, I don't think people understand that. Well, it's like, look, uh, I'm trying to think of an inexpensive car. Uh, you know, uh, a Volkswagen Beetle will get you the same place that a Rolls Royce will get you. Um, I think it'd be more fun to ride in the Rolls Royce. Yeah. So we really vet the companies that we work with. And, and that's a lot of the value in taxi is that we save you the time, the trouble and the toil of having to do it on your own when you're busy raising a family and holding down a day job. Uh, you don't, you can do it on your own, but 300 bucks a year to have somebody do all that legwork for you and bring it to your front door is a pretty good value. Well, you know, again, the way to look at it is there's only so much time in the day. Yeah. And that's probably not the most fun way to spend your day anyway you know most musicians they, they just want to create they don't right. want to do the business side of it boy that the truest yeah. words that have ever come out of your mouth probably yeah yeah well i'm the same way i don't want to do a lot of that stuff either but you do you, it <laughs> you realize that you have to uh yeah. and, and you know that's just part of being it either you do it yourself you find somebody else a lot of musicians want to find somebody else to do it for them for free i'm so uh. talented why can't you manage me? Can you promote me? Can you make all this wonderful stuff happen for me? Generally speaking, the people that you want to do that for you only want to do it for you when you've already made yourself yeah. successful because they don't have the time to build you up and make you fly. They want to get on a moving train. Yeah. What do people not know about music licensing or is there a misconception? <laughs> Boy, I could write a book on that topic. Uh, I think that people don't understand that it's not about, it's not like the record side of the industry where write a hit song that sticks. 
um, that's got a great chorus that people are going to be able to sing along with after the first time they've heard it, that somebody's going to have a, a chart-topping hit with it. The, the music that's needed for music licensing, it, it's not about do you have a hit song because that would distract from the storyline of the TV show or the film. It's does it capture and amplify the emotion in a scene or does it provide wallpaper? Let's say two people in a bar, kind of a, a shit kicker bar with peanut shells on the floor and a pool table and the stench of beer and cigarette smoke hanging in the air. Um, would this song be playing in that location? And does it um, capture the mood and maybe elevate the mood? Um, so that's one example of, of backgrounds. It's called source music, where it's ostensibly coming from a source, like a PA system in the bar. Mm -hmm. Um, another example um, might be um, a song at the end of a TV show, uh, Grey's Anatomy, where there's a montage at the end, where there's really no script and no dialogue, but somebody had their heart broken. And, and you want a song that talks about a broken heart, but does it in a very general way and a relatable way, with a lyric that doesn't say, Susie broke my heart in 1972, on the south side of Chicago because you couldn't use that unless it were a movie in 1972 in the south side of Chicago. So you want to talk about the feeling that it evokes. Um, I've never felt this pain before. Uh, I've, nobody's ever left me cold like you left me now. General terms like that. So people that want to participate in the music licensing side of the industry need to understand what the ultimate end use is and understand when they're creating that they can create a great song for records and radio or they can create a great song that works in film and TV and advertising. It's fairly rare that the two are the same thing. Yeah, it sounds like two different disciplines, actually. And yeah. it's almost like a completely different mindset as well. I, and I would think that somebody that's really good at doing one might not necessarily be able to cross over. I know of one uh, guy that can do it, but that's about it. I, I look at a lot of the guys in Nashville, which I have the greatest respect for. Nashville songwriters are true craftspeople. Yeah. And I've got some friends there that are big hit songwriters that can't wrap their head around writing for film and TV because in Nashville, lyrics have to have detail. Um, I walked in the room and it looked like this. It smelled like that. Yeah, she yeah. made me feel like this. Um, she broke the dish when I upset her. All that detail is part and parcel to great country songwriting, whereas film and TV stuff is She Broke My Heart. You're talking about more universal concepts, actually, right? Yeah, broad universal concepts. Which, again, is hard to wrap your head around. It is. You and and really make it think, work. Yeah. It, it is a discipline. It takes practice. And, and I think that somebody who is a great songwriter will find it easy once they can wrap their head. The hardest part is wrapping their head around it because they've already got the songwriting craft uh, you know, in their, their mind and their body, once they understand how to redirect that craft, then it becomes easier. Now, I would expect that you've listened to hundreds of thousands, uh, well, thousands and thousands of- Me personally or, or the company? Well, okay, you, I'm sure in the beginning, you listened to thousands. And, yes, and I did. the company, probably hundreds of thousands by now. Millions. More. Is there one particular- characteristic that's either really good that you're looking for or really bad that you see it's one thing that kind of disqualifies them right away um in the context of film and tv or generally speaking generally speaking um back in my youth when i worked at criteria the bgs were there a lot and i once asked barry gibb what makes a song a hit and he looked at me and he like, don't you know? And he just looked at me and said, emotion. So that's that's the thing. Um, I, I will admit that there have been nights where I've sat in this office at 11 o'clock at night getting ready for the road rally and have been listening to taxi member music that has made me cry. And uh, After all this time, that's yeah, happened. Yeah, it happened not long ago, actually, wow. uh, like a couple months ago. Um, emotion. If it can make you feel something, um, that's the highest form of the art, is getting you as the artist or the writer, the creator, to get somebody else to feel something. And it may not be what the writer or creator felt when they were writing it. 
it may not even be the message they intended, but if it makes you, the recipient, feel something, it makes the hair in your arm stand up or makes you cry or puts a lump in your throat or reminds you of somebody that you love or loved or somebody that's gone from your life, all those human emotions, that's pretty powerful stuff. That is the best part. The worst part is it's really obvious when somebody doesn't put effort into something and they expect everybody to love it and you just want to shake them at the shoulders, grab, shaking baby syndrome for, for artists that go, come on, who did you think you were kidding? It's almost insulting. How about recording quality? Doesn't matter as much today as it did, and I know I'm talking to the wrong guy about this, because uh, you and I could talk about recording quality all day long. You know, back when I started in the industry, distortion was a dirty word, yeah, and yeah. now it's almost a requirement. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the right guy to talk to about recording quality. Um, I will say... Well, there is a certain level that's expected, though, right? N yes and no. Um, I have heard stuff that literally sounds, at best, like it was done with the internal microphone on a Mac laptop, Um and an acoustic guitar that was probably tuned at the factory 12 years ago <laughs> and has rusted like heavy gauge rusted strings on it and the vocalist sounds like they ate gravel for breakfast smoked some weed and had a couple of shots before they recorded the song but the emotion was there you know i i hear this stuff a lot it, it, when uh, my wife and i try and go to the movies we do date night like once a week and, and most often we go to um a local movie theater where we live and uh i hear stuff all the time even in trailers you know trailers used to be a lot of big bombastic stuff with taiko drums and big orchestrations and now you hear trailers where it's somebody singing with a raspy voice and the recording quality to me is appalling because i'm an engineer producer by trade that's what i want on my tombstone yeah. i want to say studio rat because that's who i am at, at my core but I understand that there are times that poor recording quality is part of the package. It's what makes Tom Waits, you know, Neil Young. I, I, I've spent yeah. thousands of hours in a studio with Neil Young, and he's, he forbade me or forbade me, whichever is proper English, um, on the Comes a Time record about four hours into the, those, the first day of sessions. It was just Neil, myself, and my assistant and neil walked in the control room he said can we talk i said yeah he goes um you rely too much on that limiter and the equalizers um i don't want you using a, a limiter on me um and he would just wander around the room he'd strap on a martin and walk around the room and my assistant paul would be following him around with an 87 <laughs> on a boom because three weeks later neil would say remember that rainy tuesday afternoon at like 4 15 p.m um, and I was singing that song about St. Louis and, and we'd be scrambling through our notes on legal pad going, that was real 27, four minutes, 32 seconds in and have to go find it. And it would end up on an album a year later. So as much as I love, I love great recordings. I'm passionate about great recordings. And, and I've been fortunate that I've be, been able to do a lot of rock stuff, a lot of jazz stuff, some jazz stuff. Um, um, some orchestral stuff. I, I've had a wide range of stuff that I've been able to do in my career. But Neil Young said something really profound to me, which is if, uh, that limiter is not going to sell any more records. It's all about capturing the moment and the performance. So when I hear stuff today that is not pristine, um, but it captures the moment and makes the hair on my arm stand up, I almost don't care about the recording and I wonder if they do it by intent, if they make it sound like it's got heavy gauge, rusty strings on a guitar that hasn't been tuned in 15 years. Um, I wouldn't know how to do that. I, I, I <laughs> Is know. Is there a plug-in for it? <laughs> I know. It's like, on one hand, it's appalling to me. On the other hand, it, there's something attractive about it, all in the same thing. There's definitely a dichotomy in there. I must admit, I wasn't expecting that. That answer? <laughs> Uh, you know, my favorite song um, to this day is Asia by Steely Dan. I think it's the best written, best performed, best recorded, best produced song overall that I've heard in my lifetime. And that will make me cry. It lasts exactly as long as it takes me to get on the freeway where I live and get off the freeway here. 
and I've wiped tears from my eyes all these 30 years later because it's the purest form of the art. Everybody's doing their thing immaculately yeah. and it's pristine. And I love Eagles records because they're pristine. Yeah. But yet I listened to some of the Neil Young stuff that was recorded, you know, like on a, a realistic cassette deck in mono and then bounced up to 24 track with very few overdubs and it's just as moving. I get it. What's the one thing that people don't know about Taxi? How hard we work. We get very excited. We, we've taken some members from zero income and only having the dream of wanting to make money and be appreciated for the music they make. And now they're making $200,000, $250,000 a year. We've got a couple members that I suspect are making around three hundred grand a year. And their lives have been changed by what we brought to bear for them. I think a lot of people, because of our $5 submission fees, a lot of people think that I go home. People have actually posted this online. Oh, I bet Lasco goes home and rolls around in a bathtub full of $5 bills. <laughs> I think I've seen that online. Um, if they knew how much my family has sacrificed um, time that I haven't been able to spend with them. To make this company work and to bring to bear what we do, people have no idea. None. Well, I think that happens a lot with success. People yeah. think that it's easy. And maybe it's because you've made it look that way. Maybe it's because they don't realize what goes into it, which is usually the case. Yeah. Everybody sees the, the, the veneer on the outside and they don't understand what's on the inside. Everybody could be successful if they were just willing to work hard enough. Well, that's the whole key, isn't it? Yeah. But a lot of it is you, well, not a lot of it. I think at the core, you have to have the passion. And if you don't have that, you're not going to work hard enough. You're just not. I will admit that in the early years of this company, I was unstoppable. My, my passion drove me. I mean, it was passion just to survive. Yeah. You know, when, when your family lives or dies, when their health and their actual survival is all on your shoulders. You will do whatever it takes to make sure that they're taken care of. Um, then my passion became more about the customer base, about our members. Um, and in the last, I've been beat up for so long by people saying stuff about us online that it got to a point about four or five years ago where I lost some of the passion. I never lost the passion for great music. I never lost the passion for discovering great music, but I used to not be able to fall asleep at night because I couldn't wait to get to work the next day. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not a workaholic. I, I am definitely not. I'm lazy. I would just as soon sit on a couch and watch a lot of TV as I would work. But I will say in the last two years, um, I've gotten excited again, especially um, in 2018. I don't know why, but I've actually said this to my wife and to close friends and probably to the staff as well. I feel re-energized uh, of late. And um, What brought that on? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, somebody said Donald Trump. <laughs> 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 I, I don't know that I could credit Donald Trump with me being more passionate about uh, my company again. But um, I, I think I went through a period of burnout Um and I, I've bounced back from it. I don't know. Uh, but I do look forward to coming here every day. I don't look forward to answering 300 emails a day. I'm just astonished by how much time goes into emails. Yeah, It's scary and pathetic. Oh, I'm the same way, but I'm sure it's worse for you. But wow. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a, almost a full-time job. It really is. And you don't want to look. I've got a lot of taxi members that have become like family members to me over the years. And if they send me a picture of their daughter's third birthday, I don't want to just ignore them because I remember what it felt like when I had a daughter celebrating a third birthday. Uh, you know, and that takes a couple of minutes to write back. Well, I'm so glad that you guys are so happy and she's yeah. adorable and she looks so cute in her little aerial costume. Congratulations guys. Well, you know, that takes a minute or two or five and probably 20% of my emails every day are of that nature. And then a lot of them are businessy and some of them are taxi members that have a, a complaint and you can just see between the lines that they're frustrated and 
they know that they can get to me and that the taxi makes a pretty easy punching bag for them because it's a lot easier to blame taxi than it is their own lack of work ethic or the fact that they're not as invested as they should be in their craft. Yeah, you can't tell them that. That's the problem. Right, but it takes an hour to write that email back to them in a way that calms them down and helps move them forward and makes them feel like they've been heard. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I guess like a good psychologist, people just want to be heard. And I think that's why this company is successful all these years later is because I learned that work ethic from my parents and my grandparents that every customer really matters. And uh, I will take an hour, an hour and a half to answer an email, um, much to my own chagrin. Okay, Michael, last question. And I think you've already answered this, but maybe you can expand on it. The best piece of business advice that you've ever either received from somebody or you learned along the way? I don't remember what I said was the best piece of business <laughs> advice before. Um, all right. Uh, marketing is everything unless uh, I'm going to give a couple, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, like many people who start a business, you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. People will hear about it somehow through the universe and just show up at your front door. They won't. You've got to understand marketing and you got to learn how to write a great headline. Marketing is everything. The other great piece of business advice I got was from my grandfather when I was a little kid working. My grandparents and my parents owned a department store in the farm town I grew up in. And uh, a major competitor, Carson Perry Scott, was across the street from us. And my grandfather once said to me, because uh, we were in a farm town, he said, if a farmer walks in and wants a blue flannel shirt and all we have are red flannel shirts, take them by the hand, walk them across the street and show them where the red flannels or the blue flannel shirts are at our competitor store and you will have earned a customer for life. So um, that's the business advice is never forget who your customer is and what they want. And you can apply that to a pizza shop. You could apply it to manufacturing satellites. You could uh, apply it to owning a racetrack. You could apply it to any business you have to know who your customer is and make sure that they're happy. Common sense. You can find out more about Taxi at Taxi.com. Taxi, T-A-X-I, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now Google Podcasts. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Time.